Amen. Well, thank you guys. I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer. Join me in the book of Mark, the good news that is, the announcement according to Mark, the proclamation according to Mark, the announcement of the arrival of a new king according to Mark. All of these concepts are wrapped up in this phrase, the beginning of the gospel, the evangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been studying in verses 9 through 15, looking at these as three waves of Mark's introduction of Jesus to his readers. First in Jesus' baptism, then in his temptation in the wilderness, and now this morning in his preaching. Noting how each of these represents one element of Jesus' inauguration as king of the world, the son of God. Let's read together just verses 14 and 15 this morning, and then we'll dive in. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. It is not a mere trite recitation when we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. For eons and eons, the word was far and kept often from your church. But in these latter days, you have made print copies and digital copies and verified copies and understandable translations ready and at our fingertips. O oh Lord, when we say thanks be to God for your word, we mean it. Thank you for your word, that you have preserved it, you have made it available, and that you have given to the church, preachers and teachers, scholars and theologians, professors and otherwise, to help us to understand and apply it. For the saying is trustworthy and true that you have given to us in your word all things pertaining to life and godliness. Let us then, on this day, look to your word wherein it we find all things that we require. May you use the time to mold us and shape us. Make us ready and useful tools in your hand for the sake of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's important for us to realize that these weeks all work together. Four weeks, we're calling this the inauguration of a king. We are seeking to understand how these components are being used by Mark, the author, to introduce his readership to this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the anointed one, the Messiah now come, the Son of God. We have to approach this as though we are reading it the way that the author intended his audience to read it, which is to say, we don't know who Jesus is. Mark says, here's the best way I can introduce him to you. And he uses then these three waves to show us the arrival of King Jesus. Critically speaking... Jesus lived the life mankind is compelled to live on our behalf. He did so as our representative and as our pattern to follow. He is the stand-in for Adam, the champion of his people, and he is the example to follow. Last Sunday, I offered these as a summary of the Christian life. Repentance, sanctification, representation. Repentance, sanctification, representation. That is, that is the, the summary of the Christian life. Not so much how we get there, but rather the life of the Christian is a life of repentance, sanctification, 
and representation. It is a life that begins with repentance and is marked by perpetual repentance. It is a life, however, that only just begins at repentance and then comes the everyday growing more like Jesus and less like the devil. That is our sanctification. Then once we realize that there is more going on in the world than our own personal struggles, that there's more happening in the broader sphere of human history than our own personal demons, than our own personal and spiritual growth and maturity, only then do we move beyond repentance, sanctification, to representation. Meaning, the purpose of our our repentance and sanctification is so that we can accurately represent our Savior in view of the watching world who is doomed in their sin. It is my contention that a relative few Christians ever get to this point in their spiritual development. Now, that's not to say that we don't invite people to church or even speak confidently about our eternal destiny when the opportunity arises. Rather, we so rarely embrace the notion that every moment, every grief, every blessing, every relationship, every holiday, every day at work, you get the idea, that each of these is not just an opportunity to maybe share the love of Christ. Rather, each of these scenarios and everyone like it carries with it the obligation to represent Jesus and the hope we have in him to a watching world. Obligation, not mere opportunity. To our wayward grown children who have wandered from the faith that we thought we raised them in, we have an obligation to present to them confidence in the Lord's providence and compassion, not anxiety and worry. One is an accurate representation of our Savior and the hope we have, one is not. To the one who mistreats us, self-control and mercy, not offense and indignation. Our world is, is so eager to be offended and indignant. We have an obligation to represent our Savior accurately. To those who are not incensed or shocked at mistreatment, What has our scriptures told us to expect? In our grief and in our suffering, we have an obligation to live and walk in and genuinely present peace that passes understanding, peace that is rooted in that which is beyond this life as opposed to a short-sightedness as though we have no hope. We have an obligation to represent our Savior. And every time we refuse in selfishness and self-centeredness or are unable in our immaturity to do so, we are failing to represent our Savior accurately to a doomed world. We are so often caught in the middle of trying to work out our own salvation that we miss the purpose of it. They're watching So we mishandle the moment, we hear a sermon that might convict us, or we read a devotional material and realize, like, I I could have or I should have handled that differently. And, And that's good, don't get me wrong, right? But that's our sanctification. If we are to complete the Christian life, to be a a whole warrior, a useful and sharp tool in the hand of God for his purposes, we must apply our sanctification to representation and insist upon ourselves that we take up the mantle forfeited by Adam, reclaimed by Jesus, and represent God the Father as his imago dei, his image bearers, in his creation to what is now a doomed population. 
It is this threefold summary that Mark uses to introduce us to Jesus in his inauguration. Repentance, sanctification, representation. Baptism, testing, preaching. He represents now the Father to the world through his preaching. He stands in our place as he repents in the waters of baptism. He stands in our place as he endures the testing of trial and temptation in the 40 days. And now he stands in our place and accurately represents the God of all creation in his creation to a doomed population. In each of these, Jesus does them perfectly so that we might enjoy the benefit of his accomplishments by faith. He did each of these not for himself, but for us. He needed not to repent. Even John said as much, I need to be baptized by you, not you baptized by me. The sinless one has no need to repent. He didn't repent for himself. He went into the waters of repentance for you so that you could follow him. He went into the wilderness trial and testing, not for himself, but to conquer sin and temptation so that you could follow him. And now he preaches the gospel as an accurate representative of God in a doomed world, not for himself, but so that you could follow him. Well, I hope that that helps us to understand the bigger picture of what's happening here as Mark introduces his readership to Jesus. So as we consider Mark's third wave, Jesus' preaching ministry, We will consider the summary words of Jesus' preaching ministry. And our goal will be twofold, to appreciate the nature of his message and then to recognize what Mark is communicating about Jesus to those who are reading his account. To do that, let's consider three sets of triplets. My outline this morning is very easy to follow. It's uh, one with three subpoints, two with three subpoints, three with three subpoints, right? So you can make it on your notes, you can do it already, and you can just fill it in. It's more for me than for you, just so you know. Keep me going. So to consider the nature of Jesus' message and to recognize Mark's objective in how he is introducing Jesus to us, let's consider first the context. The context, which is to say that which has led up to this proclamation of Jesus. Three words, providence, preparation, prophecy. Providence, preparation, and prophecy. Let's read this again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After John was arrested, this is providence. In the Greek, it actually reads, after John was handed over. A very specific Greek verb. Now, in a chronological order of events... This is inconsistent with John's account of the life of Jesus. John records that Jesus' preaching ministry and John's ministry overlap. That's where we get the whole, the whole famous uh, line, he must increase and I must decrease by John the Baptist. But Mark says after John was arrested, then Jesus began to preach. What's going on here? Is there an inconsistency in the scriptures... Is there a contradiction in the text, or is something else being communicated? Well, I'm convinced that there is something greater and deeper being communicated than a simple chronology of events. Stick with me. The biblical authors are Easterners, and so they write like Easterners, not Westerners. We, as Westerners, are often reading an ancient Eastern book with Western eyes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, simply this. We read and expect linear timelines, chronological accounting. It's part of why Luke's gospel is so appealing to us. He was a Greek, and so he kind of wrote like a Western Greek. 
But we expect that. We come to the Bible and we look for that. And when we don't find that, we are often disappointed. In fact, it is one of the great tasks of the Bible student to be able to establish in his or her mind a clear accounting of events throughout biblical history. When and where and who. What kings overlap with what prophets and what events came before others because in the Old Testament record they are not chronologically ordered in all cases. And then we come to the New Testament and it's just as much of a mixed bag. The Gospels were often written after the letters. Galatians was like the first thing written. Acts was recorded but not written until like 70 or 80 AD. It gets wacky. Here's the key, friends. Eastern authorship often seeks to communicate deeper truths than simple chronology. We don't think this way, therefore we don't read this way. The Eastern author will hide messages to make emphasis. Remember the introduction to Mark where we talked about how Mark uses something called the sandwich technique? where he tells a story and then he pauses the story and he puts a little story inside of that story and then he finishes his original story. And unless we recognize that he as an Eastern author is hiding a message, we'll read past it and miss it. We'll miss the point. Unless we see it as a unit, then we miss the main emphasis of the whole. We've got to read an Eastern book with Eastern eyes. Uh, another example of this is in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. In the original Hebrew language, in Genesis, every 50th letter spells Torah. T, skip 50, O, skip 50, R, or rather the Hebrew equivalent of each of those. Same thing in Exodus. Every 50 letters spells Torah. Skip number 3, Leviticus, and go to number 4, Numbers. Every 49 letters spells Torah backwards. Skip to Deuteronomy, fifth book, same thing. 49 letters, Torah backwards. Almost like the first two are pointing this way and the last two are pointing this way. And what's in the middle? The book of Leviticus, where every seventh letter in the Hebrew spells out the tetragrammaton, well, the, the name we most often associate with God, Yahweh, Y-H-V-H. And what's Leviticus all about? It's almost like this emphasis. It's like pointing and it's like, God, 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 Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. What's Leviticus all about? Leviticus is all about how God will send himself as the lamb to make atonement for the sins of the people of the world. And what is Christianity all about? How God became a man and gave himself as the atonement to cover the sin of the people of the world. Now, we read those first five books in English, and we miss that altogether. Number one, we're not looking for it. Number two, we're not reading it in Hebrew, so that which might glow doesn't, right? Well, what's the point in all this? Well, again, that hidden message in the Torah books is more magnificent than a simple chronology. The deeper truth is more important than a basic order of events or making something readable. Don't you often wonder why certain things are repetitive? Like, gosh, it's awfully repetitive. Yeah, the authors are doing wacky stuff in the original language in order to make points. It's, it's brilliant. It's fascinating. Well, we fast forward to Mark, and Mark says... After John was arrested, Jesus began preaching. A more orderly account of things shows Jesus preaching and baptizing and growing in fame and John's disciples getting jealous for him. Hey man, he's over there preaching and some of your crowd is over at his church, right? Maybe we need better music. Now, okay, I'm, I'm gonna stop on that because we don't have, I got 12 whole pages of notes. Right, there's like friction and John's like, I'm the forerunner. He must increase. I must decrease. So then Mark tells the story, and Mark says, Jesus didn't start preaching until after John was arrested. The Eastern author seeks to communicate a deeper truth 
than a simple chronology of events. We have the obligation then to try and find out and ask the text honestly, what is the deeper truth? What is the objective? What is the author trying to communicate? And it's quite simple, actually. While it's hidden and beautiful, it's really very simple. Jesus has a purpose, and John has a purpose. John's purpose is fulfilled. It's Jesus' time now. The old covenant is complete. The last old covenant prophet, John the Baptist, has prophesied the coming of the Messiah. He is here. And so to emphasize the point that one is passing, one is being completed, and the new is beginning, Mark says it like this. After John was, in the Greek, handed over. Mark could have used a different word if he meant to say he was arrested, taken by force. Mark did use that word in another part of his gospel. It's the Greek word, where is it? Krateo. It has as it, at its root uh, the idea of might, power, to seize by strength, krateo. Mark doesn't use that verb here. He uses the, the verb pradidomai, which means handed over. The implication is this. God providentially hands John over from his hand into the hands of men in order to usher in the beginning of the new. As Paul would later write to the Corinthians, the old is passing away. All things are being made new. That's the deeper truth that Mark is looking to communicate. Not a mere chronology of events, but rather old creation, new creation. Old kingdom, new kingdom. Old covenant, new covenant. So the first bit of context to appreciate is the Holy Spirit communicating to us the old is passing away. Behold, the new is here. Second word is preparation. Preparation. The context of Jesus' preaching is that he does so not before, but only after 40 days of fasting, being tempted. And the temptation, as we recognize in the other gospel accounts, is a temptation to ease his suffering, to, to take the shortcut to accomplish his goal, but triumphing over this test. In many ways, you might say God is preparing his servant. He has prepared the way for the suffering servant through John the baptizer, and he has prepared the suffering servant through trial. This is important to recognize because the pragmatic mind says Jesus wasted time. He wasted like 20 years. He was blowing the minds of the priests with his understanding of the text when he was like my oldest son's age, like 13. He could have began then preaching. Why didn't he? He wasted time. Foolish Jesus, silly Messiah. If only he had asked me, I'd have told him how to do it. The pragmatic mind says Jesus wasted two decades. Can you imagine the miracles, the teaching, the, the breadth of writing he could have done if he had devoted himself to 20 years of public ministry, the miracles, the accounting, goodness gracious. Why didn't he start his ministry at 10 or 13 or 2, for crying out loud? Can you imagine a toddler healing people? Come on! The father was preparing his servant. Such that when the writer of Hebrews says he was tested in every way as we are yet without sin, we know he is implying more than those 40 days of testing. Jesus knows what it's like to live and work as a laborer under heavy and crooked taxation. So does many of his followers, right? He knows. 
He knows what it's like to become the breadwinner for a family due to the early and untimely death of his earthly father. Almost certainly, Joseph was much older than Mary, uh, to the degree that we would, we would cringe in our modern sensibilities. And he passed away early. And Jesus, as the eldest son, took on the role of the breadwinner, taking over, if you will, the, the family business until his brothers were old enough to carry the mantle, provide for their mother, and provide for the rest of the household. Then at 30 years old, Jesus begins his ministry. So he knows what it's like to be the breadwinner, to take on a burden. He knows what it's like to go day after day to the same job, not because it's his dream job, but because he's a man. And as a man, that's our duty. He can sympathize with you in every disappointment, in every grief, in every heartache, in every busted knuckle, in every disappointment, every, every illegal and heavy lean weighed against you, every crooked taxation, every theft, every business deal gone south, every moment of life. He can sympathize. He was prepared before he began to preach. The 40 days then represent a symbol of the father having prepared the son for the task at hand. He's been prepared. And then finally, the third word, prophecy. Providence, preparation, and prophecy. This is the context of Jesus preaching. We read in Isaiah 9, there will, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Who was in anguish? Well, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Well, where's that? Well, if you look at your Bible maps, you'll see that it's kind of like, you know, the region of Galilee. And, and that populace, that population was, was brought into contempt and anguish. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. What sea? The Sea of Galilee. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came where? Into Galilee, preaching, the light shining. Providence, preparation, prophecy. We read that Jesus' ministry begins in a place of spiritual darkness, a place far from the bustling, important capital city of Jerusalem, a place of obscurity, a place of disrepute, can anything good come out of that place? Where's he from? West side of Charlotte? Is anything good happening over there? It's just like gas tanks, right? You guys know about Tank Town? If you're not from here and you don't, you don't know about Tank Town, you could do like a historical walking tour. <laughs> These are our tanks. I don't know what that's about. Providence, preparation and prophecy. In fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus begins his preaching ministry. Look at this. Doing what we are compelled to do. Being light in a dark place. Proclaiming the good news in a place of spiritual darkness. Without fanfare, but faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Providence, preparation, and prophecy. So that's the context of Jesus preaching. That's the, the, the backdrop, if you will. Now, here's the message. Number two, what did he say? All this buildup, prophecy, preparation, providence of God. What's the message? Well, the message is, again, threefold. It's about timing, Creation and action. Three words, timing, creation, action. He begins as this, this summary of Mark. Okay, Mark is summarizing the preaching ministry of Jesus with one sentence. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The waiting is over. God has prepared the world for his salvation. He has raised up kingdoms and brought kingdoms low. He has combined kingdoms into one empire. He has 
had them lay roads on which the gospel would travel after Jesus' ascension. He has prepared the world to receive his Messiah. The waiting is over. Not only that, but he has predicted the number of days until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In 538 BC, the angel Gabriel gave Daniel a prophecy pinpointing when Messiah would arrive. It reads this way, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. The anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. The anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. Well, Nehemiah records that date, the date when the, the command, the call is given to restore Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that had been destroyed by invasion. Nehemiah records that date as March 5th, 444 B.C. And sure enough, according to the lunar calendar, the mathematics equals, you know, it's uh, uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens. The math is 170,880 days. And according to the time predicted, down to the day, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, a donkey's colt, the official mark in Hebrew culture of the arrival of a new king on March 30th, 33 A.D., Exactly 170,880 days after King Artaxerxes says, go rebuild the temple. What's the point? When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, (laughs) he means it, right? Down to the day. It's a good thing he didn't get a cold. He would have been delayed. (sighs) Sorry. Paul summarizes this saying, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that he, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. Timing is the first aspect of the message of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. Secondly, creation. Creation. That is to say, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. This is a a kingdom of new creation. God's reign has begun, and therefore someone else's reign is to end. Whose? Satan's. Typically in church, when you don't know the answer, the answer is Jesus. But in this case, if you don't know the answer, the answer is Satan. Who is reigning over the earth until the time of Jesus? Satan. He has the keys. He he reigns over the earth as the prince of the, the power of the air, as Paul calls him, or the prince of darkness. Under the ultimate sovereign oversight of God, as we see in Job, but Adam forfeited what God gave to him when he said, have dominion over the earth. Take charge of it. Name the animals. I created them, you name them. Subdue the earth, put to order what would otherwise just kind of grow. Have dominion over my creation. Manage it, steward it. And let's talk at the end of the day. What'd you build today? What'd you work on today, right? And then in his sin, Adam forfeited, if you will, the keys to that oversight over to Satan. And the implication is that as Jesus arrives on the scene and begins to preach, he is making a rival claim to the throne on which Satan sits over God's good, now broken creation. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom built for a new creation which is yet to come. Between this moment and his return, we read in John that he is preparing a place. That is to say, in the age of grace, Jesus is preparing a people, a new creation people, fit for the new creation place. New creation people for a new creation. And it's always worth reading from Revelation, 
John seeing this new creation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Sea is always a picture of chaos, death, uncertainty, fear. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. A new people being made ready for a new creation. A new kingdom inaugurated, a new creation is coming, the new people are now being made ready for it. It's wonderful. Timing, creation, and then action. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Take action. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Two things. Repent. It's metanoia. We studied that weeks ago. That's a total change of mind, a complete shift in the thinking. Repent and believe in the gospel. Not just believe, but believe in. What's the difference? Well, if we are to see and take part in this new kingdom of new creation, two things are required, repent and believe in. Paul puts it this way in Romans, believe and confess Jesus is Lord. In either case, mere intellectual agreement is not implied, but rather a change of mind, orientation, direction, ambition, desire. Unless you have a new Lord, you have not repented from following your own way, the way of your own sinful impulses, the way of giving in to the craving of your base desires. You are still the Lord of your life. That's not believing in the gospel. You might believe it to be true, but you're not believing in it so long as you are walking according to your own way. Unless you have a new Lord, you have not repented of following your own way. Unless you believe in the good news, your life is not oriented to following the steps of Jesus. Believing the gospel to be true is easy. The demons believe and tremble. The demons have no doubt about who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, God incarnate, crucified, raised from the dead, and ascended. The demons believe all those basic tenets of Christianity. They are not redeemed, and neither are we, unless we believe in them. To believe in the gospel is to entrust your life to it, is to take that classic Indiana Jones step. I'm dating myself on this one. I, I, I rarely feel old, right? but here I feel old, Everyone who's like under the age of 30, you know, doesn't know, you know, the classic Indiana Jones, right? Step of faith, you know, out onto the invisible bridge, the invisible foot, footpath that, that bridges the divide. That's believing in the gospel. If it's not true, you plummet to your demise and you step anyway. See, that's believing in the gospel. That's Romans 10, 9. Believe in your heart means entrust your life. I'm going to bet my life on this. My life here and now and my life for all of eternity. That's to believe in the gospel. You are so convinced that your that you're step into that, the waters of death, the steps of death, you do so confident that he will catch you. And then you do that every day. Denying yourself daily, taking up your cross daily, following Jesus daily, Luke 9, 35. Every day, you believe in and believe in and believe in and believe in. Not that you need to be redeemed every day, but every day's actions mark the truth of your orientation. You believe in the gospel. Not just that it's true. 
Well, that's the summary of Jesus' message. It's a simple summary, right? The time is fulfilled. The new creation is here. New creation, new kingdom, new people. Unless you are made new, you will not enjoy the blessing of being part of the new kingdom, which is not of this world, Jesus said, but is of what? The new creation. New people, new kingdom, and a new creation. How do we do it? How do we ensure that we are part of this new kingdom and this new creation, that we are one of these new people? Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a simple message, really. Three critical parts, but simple indeed. Well, from the context to the message, we come to the appeal. The appeal. I I like that word because we find it often in the New Testament writers, the apostles, you know, the the preachers, if you will, of, of their day, they would write and say, I, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you. I'm, I'm, I beckon you. I'm pulling on you, if you will, with my words. I'm tying a string to your ears, to your mind, to your heart, and I'm pulling you this way. I'm begging you to come with me. Don't just hear what I'm saying. Come where I'm going. It's a powerful exhortation. In all things Bible, there is doctrine and there is devotion. Doctrine and devotion. Things to learn and lessons to apply. One without the other makes an incomplete Christian. All devotion without doctrine creates disillusioned Christians blown over by the storms of life. All they've been told is how to to apply very simple, shallow truths. And then when the storms come, they do not have deep roots. And they are tossed. All doctrine with no devotion makes for self-righteous intellects who are useless in bearing one another's burdens and being compassionate and being humble, meek servants of the gospel. Which is why we say one without the other makes an incomplete Christian. And so, having thought carefully, having thought doctrinally about what's happening here, even about these verses, let us consider devotionally these three appeals. Number one, God is preparing you for usefulness. God is preparing you for usefulness. We must recognize, Alistair said this, uh, Alistair Begg said this recently in an interview, uh, that the Lord is using the dark times to prepare us for usefulness. Spurgeon put it this way, all that befalls us on our road to heaven is meant to fit us for our journey's end. Our way through the wilderness is meant to try us and to prove us that our evils may be discovered, repented of, and overcome, and that thus we may be without fault before the throne at last. (laughs) I would have loved to have sat in the room when he uttered those words. I think I would have actually combusted into flames and rushed out the door to proclaim the gospel. Maybe one day uh, some of you will do that. Spurgeon continues, we are being educated for the skies and for the assembly of the perfect. What we shall be does not yet appear because we are struggling up towards it. God is preparing you for usefulness. I would encourage you, pray not too often for ease, Christian, but for strength to endure and progress in usefulness. Just as God prepared Jesus for his purpose as the suffering servant, just as he prepared David in the wilderness tending sheep and in the years running from the maniacal king Saul, just as God prepared Joseph for his 
task as number two in the kingdom of Egypt to rescue a nation or nations in the same way. He is preparing you, friend, in sickness and in trial and surprise, grief and anxious moments. For those who love God, all things work together for good. I appeal to you that you consider God is preparing you for usefulness. Number two, I appeal to you to consider that God's timing is perfect. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The timing is perfect. It reminds us, this simple phrase, that our days are in the Lord's hands. Just like John's days as he is providentially handed over, just like Jesus' days being raised until the right moment and the right day in which he would ride into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey's colt. We are exactly where the Lord wants us today. Whatever the season, the Lord's timing is perfect. This is a great comfort to us, Christian. We are often looking back at previous seasons, believing in those we understood our purpose. Moms, when you're raising children, you understand your purpose, right? Beat those kids, you know, beat the sin out of those kids, you know? It's not complicated, right? No, you get it, right? Those kids grow up and they get older and they move out and they stop listening to you. And you begin to wonder, what am I doing? What's my purpose? Now, you might be so advanced in years that you have only enough strength to be here today, much less go out and, you know, storm the world, take on, you know, Hinduism in foreign countries and debate on college campuses. You're doing well to get dressed and arrive, and you say, what's my purpose? I appeal to you, friend, to consider these words of Jesus, right? The time is fulfilled. The timing of God is providentially perfect always, every day, whatever the season. If we're peering into the unknown regions of seasons ahead, we have this confidence the time is fulfilled. He is ushering in and ushering out according to his good pleasure. We need not worry over what tomorrow might be, what tomorrow may bring, or what today has not yet rendered. The time is fulfilled. Thirdly, I would appeal to you to consider this good news unto salvation is good news in a world of bad news. It is good news at a time when the world is ravaged with bad news. I think that, I think that the, the advent of the internet and mass availability of information of world events happening all around the globe available to us at a moment's notice, I believe that's providentially necessary for the end of days to be fulfilled but I also believe that God and God alone has the emotional capacity to read and ingest and dwell on and know all of the evil and all the tragedy of the world. We don't have it in us to handle it. If you spend your days scrolling the news and reading and keeping up to date in Israel and Hamas and what's going on with Hezbollah and what's going on in Africa and what's going on in Latin America and the cartels and the drug abuse and the, our cities and domestic violence and child abuse and, and you know, the black market for child slavery, I mean, it, it will crush you. You don't have the emotional capacity to bear it. Only God does. But... To know that these things are happening is a good reminder, friends, because as much as you know about them, the rest of the world knows about them, and you know what they need in a time of bad news? Good news. Yeah. And so to a world that is piled high with fear and uncertainty and unrest, this good news is a salve for the soul. For every reason that our world is riddled with fear, there is a corresponding characteristic of the gospel. To those who fear death, this is the good news of immortality. 
John 3, 16, right? Those who believe will have everlasting life. To those who fear the unknown, this is the gospel of truth. No longer does man need to guess and strain. Here is the way, the truth, and the life. To those who fear the uncertainty of life, this is the good news of hope, Colossians 1.23. To those who fear their own condemning conscience, this is the gospel, the good news of peace, Ephesians 6.15. To those who fear the aimlessness of life, this is the good news of salvation, Ephesians 1.13. On and on and on. For every fear, for every reason our world is riddled with fear, there is a corresponding characteristic of the good news. All of this, confidence in timing, preparation for usefulness, peace, where there is otherwise only conflict, hinges on but one phrase. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so, may we be equipped and readied to live a life of repentance. May we leave here determined to live a life of sanctification. May we be all the more determined and steadfastly convicted to fulfill our obligation of representation. The message of Jesus is good news indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time and the moments that we have together in it. May you use these moments to stir us, convict us, comfort us, and remind us. And as we leave this place, may you sharpen us. Help us to embrace our obligation as tools in your hand not for the sake of our own comfort, our own reputations, our own 401k or long-term investments or anything of such silly nature, but rather, most importantly, that we are effective tools in your hand for the sake of the gospel. For you are making a new people for a new kingdom fit for a new creation. Thanks be to God. In Christ's name, amen.